couple of years ago, Megan and I had the opportunity to host a couple in our home. And in really every way that you could see them, they appeared very ordinary. They appeared very normal. And they weren't normal. They were empty nesters who had seen their kids off to college. They were looking forward to their later years together as a couple and being able to travel the world and do some fairly extraordinary things and have experiences and take all of the pictures but there was something about them that was actually profoundly extraordinary too. It's the, it's the reason that I can't give you their names. And it's that they were missionaries into China, except they weren't able to be in China at the moment. Because they were, you see, accused by the Chinese government as being for international espionage. They were thrown from their homes and told that if they re-enter the country of China, that they will be imprisoned and they will be arrested. And what I, what I remember being so struck by as I talked with them was that, you know, real people actually live this way. Real people actually live this way. Real people are, are dealing with things around the world that we can't even begin to comprehend. That there are real people that can sit across from my kitchen table that are accused of being an international spy because they want to plant churches. The, this particular couple heads up the International Mission Board's efforts to plant churches among, among the unreached people groups in the world's largest country with the world's largest unreached population. And they're just empty nesters. They're just ordinary people who left the United States a few years ago. Over the last few weeks, we've heard a lot of the things that Paul's been saying, right? Paul has been telling us to put others ahead of ourselves and to count them being more significant than us and to, to value and to live humbly and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he's called us to do some things that for the most part, for the most part, we look at them and they feel so ordinary that we think, well, that's not really possible so I'm not gonna sweat it. But what Paul wants us to see this morning is that there are real people who actually live this way. There are real Christians who actually endeavor to mature in their faith and to strengthen in their faith and to live a life that is radically set apart from anything that you can find in the world. So he's gonna hold up for us Timothy and he's gonna hold up for us Epaphroditus that we might see examples of joy and that we ourselves might be called to a higher life in Christ, a higher life in Christian maturity. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two. And today is a, a very privileged day in the life of our church. If you're wondering why I'm wearing a coat, it's not because I suddenly have a desire to be formal. Um, it's because we have the very distinct opportunity to be able to ordain John Hall uh, into the elder ministry. And it is a distinct privilege that we wanted to set aside as a, a very extraordinary day. So I'm gonna be addressing the congregation and I'm going to be addressing you, John, and, and giving you charges into the gospel ministry. Once you're at Philippians chapter two, would you stand with me? as we prepare to read God's word together. We're gonna begin in verse 19, and we're gonna read through the end of the chapter together. God's word says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. 
For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. The gospel changes your life and then the gospel keeps on changing your life. If we were to summarize all that Paul has said in Philippians chapter two, we might be able to summarize it just as simply as that, that the gospel changes your life and the gospel continues to change your life. The gospel changes despair into joy, pride into humility, rebellion into obedience, and division into unity. And so if we are, as Paul has called us to do, live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then what we have to understand that as we live this life that is worthy of Jesus Christ, we will ever and increasingly so be formed and forged into the character of Jesus Christ. That the Holy Spirit indwelling us, that us working out our salvation with fear and trembling will see evidenced by the fact that our life continues to transform. That all Christians are a work in progress, but all Christians should be progressing. All Christians should show evidence of a maturing faith, of an ever increasing faith in their life. So what we have here is Paul is kind of returning back from a time of teaching to his original intent in writing the letter. And that is to give a missionary report to the church at Philippi, to tell them this, this missionary that they have supported financially, this missionary that they have supported in prayer and in manpower, how he's in prison and how the work is going to keep on. And so as part of this missionary report, what Paul does is he holds up two men. He talks about two men that the Philippians were already familiar with. He talks about Timothy and he talks about Epaphroditus. And the reason is really twofold. Like on one hand, they're wanting reinforcements in Philippi. Philippi is a good church. Philippi is a joyful church, but Philippi has got its own issues. And so they write to, to, uh, to Paul and they're basically saying, Paul, we need you, man. Or, or if we can't get you, can you at least send to us Timothy? Send on the reinforcements. And the other reason that Paul is responding to them is he wants them to say, hey, look, I'm, I can't come right now. I can't really even afford to send you Timothy right now, but I'm gonna send you Epaphroditus. And what I want you to see is all these things that I'm calling you to, they're possible. This life that I'm calling you to live is possible. Faithfulness is possible. Unity is possible. Passion is possible. Joy that is durable, it is possible. And it's possible because you can see it in Epaphroditus. 
It's possible because you already know the proven worth of Timothy. You already know that these are ordinary men that are possessed by an almighty God and being possessed by an almighty God, they have been enabled and empowered to live a life that ordinary men just don't live. And so he, he's gonna give us through the example of, our li- of, of their lives, marks of Christian maturity. Marks of how we can know that the Spirit is really taking over our life and filling our life and permeating our life. How we can see and evaluate where we are in the faith. And so what we should see in each of these marks and each of these, these descriptions in Timothy and Epaphroditus is in our lives, these things should be in growing measure over the course of time that they start at one place and we have maybe a degree of these marks, but ever so increasing over the course of our lives, what we should see is that these, continu- these traits continue to develop. They continue to increase. Now, if, if you're like me and you've been a Christian for your period of time, it just doesn't feel like that's happening, does it? it? It typically just doesn't feel like that's happening until you remember who you were five years ago. Until you stop for a second and remember who you were 10 years ago. And that stumbling baby that's been uh, falling and staggering through life, you look back and you realize, man, I've actually made it somewhere. Wow, God is good. God's grace is there because I'm not who I once was. And so I have confidence that I will not be one day who I am now. The traits that we're going to see are are traits that should be true of every spirit-filled believer of every person that has committed their life to following after Christ, every person that has committed their life to pursuing Jesus and honoring Jesus and entrusting their life to Jesus. But John, it should especially be true of an elder. It should be especially true of an elder. Outside of the gift and the ability to teach, there is no qualification in the life of an elder that is different from that of a Christian in general. It's just that in our elders, they ought to be especially true. They ought to be especially true. They ought to be especially present. They ought to be especially pronounced. And so John, as we hear these things, I want the whole congregation to model and to evaluate their own lives, but especially you, brother, especially you. And the other elders that are here and in the room this morning, I call to you to do the same, to hold your life and to realize that these are things that must especially be true of you. So when we come into verse 20 and 21, the first example that Paul holds up for us is the example of Timothy. Timothy, we know, was an elder himself, right? Paul writes what we call the pastoral epistles and talks about the qualifications of elders in those epistles to Timothy himself, first and second Timothy. We know that Timothy was what Paul considered to be his child in the faith, his personal protege. And so as he holds up Timothy, he is very truly holding up to us what an elder looks like, who an elder, a pastor actually is. The first mark of Christian maturity that I want to see in Timothy's life is that mature Christians are burdened for others, not obsessed with themselves. Mature Christians are burdened for others, not obsessed with themselves. In verses 20 and 21, it says this, for I have no one like him, meaning Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
Now, there's an interesting juxtaposition that happens here, right? There's an interesting juxtaposition in the text. If you'll you'll think back what Paul has been talking about, what he's been talking about is how we care for others, right? Like like ministering to others, counting the needs of others, or putting the interests of others ahead of your own interests, uh, counting others as being more significant than yourselves. And he says virtually the exact same thing about Timothy, except with a slight difference, right? So, So when he talks about Timothy, he says, look, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And because I'm going to send Timothy to you because he's just different than everybody else. He, he just stands out in a way that contrasts him with all the others. And the thing that causes him to stand out is that when he comes to you, he's going to minister to you like so many others I could send you would minister to you. He's going to teach you God's word like so many others that I could send to you that will teach God's word. But he, he is going to actually care, genuinely care, truly and purely care about your welfare. And then what does he say the very next thing? He says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. See, see, here's what he's saying. When we place the interests of others ahead of our own interests, when we count others as being more significant than ourselves, that what we're doing is we're living out the very interests of Jesus himself. That to put the interests of others ahead of yourself is to chiefly in the life of the mature Christian to place the interests of Jesus ahead of yourself. Because what is Jesus interested in? Jesus is interested in the welfare and the well-being of his church, of his bride. Jesus came and he humbled himself and he was obedient to death, even death on a cross that his church might be saved, that his church might be redeemed, that his church might have the Holy Spirit, that his church might have refuge in God himself. And for those who are maturing in the faith, for those who are growing in the faith, the chief desire of a faithful life is to live a life that is purely interested in the interests of Jesus, to pursue the mission of Christ and the purposes of Christ and the purposes of Christ. Christ revolve around his church. So what Paul is saying is that Timothy, Timothy cares about what Jesus cares about and what Jesus cares about is you. So Timothy cares about you and he's gonna come to you and he's gonna minister to you and he's gonna help you. To love is to be burdened, isn't it? To love is to be burdened. You all know this. If you've ever sent a child to college in a foreign town, you stay up at night and you worry about them, don't you? You stay up at night and, and you, you cry sometimes. You don't really know why you're crying. You're afraid sometimes and you don't really know why you're afraid. And you find yourself in the middle of your job and you're preoccupied with a child that's not even there. A child that honestly, you don't even know is having trouble. Because you're burdened for them. You're burdened for them and you're burdened for them because you love them love them. You know, I've had, I've had operations in the past and I just didn't worry about them very much. Not that long ago, Megan had to have one and I was scared to death. I was scared to death. That's, that's, that's my woman, man. That's my beloved. And it's a picture of what it looks like to love, isn't it? That you feel the pain of your spouse more profoundly than you feel your own pain that you worry for the welfare of your spouse more profoundly than you worry about your own welfare. To love is to be burdened. This is who Christ is. 
Christ came for us, his beloved, as the beloved of Almighty God himself. He came for us and he took our burdens upon himself. He took our problems upon himself. He took our shortcomings upon himself that those may be vanquished at great cost to himself. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to live a mature Christian life, it better look like that. It ought to be shaped like the cross. It ought to come to us in the form of a burden. What, what Paul's talking about in Timothy is the, the purity of his motives. Because very often we serve others not because we love them, but so that they will love us, don't we? And, and it's a perversion of something that is beautiful and something that is powerful. It is perverse to serve someone else under the pretense of love so that you might ultimately advance your own name and your own agenda and your own reputation. It's to love with pretense and it prevents us from loving truly and purely. But not Timothy. Not the mature Christian, not the Christian that is shaped into the interests of Christ. No, no, that person loves genuinely. That person cares genuinely for the welfare of someone else, even if their welfare will be costly for them. I wonder who in the kingdom of God you're burdened for. I wonder who in the kingdom of God you're burdened for. Whose good is on your mind? Whose burdens are you bearing? Who in the kingdom of God are you staying up at night worried about and concerned for? Who in the kingdom of God have you adopted as your own and taken up their struggles and their hardships as your own? John, that's what it means to be a pastor. That's what it means to be a pastor. It is to make the burdens of others your very own burden. It is to make the hardships of others your very own hardship. It is to pursue the affliction of others as your very own affliction. It is to care genuinely for the welfare of, of the other person, even, even, especially when it's costly for you. The second mark that we see in the life of Timothy is that mature Christians are proven through testing, not left alone. Proven through testing, not left alone. Verse 22, Paul says this of Timothy, says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. That is when Paul talks about his proven worth, he's talking about his character. He's talking about that you already know Timothy, I already know Timothy, and we know that Timothy is up for the task. We know that Timothy is a man of honor. We know that Timothy is a man of courage. We know that Timothy is a man of integrity. We know who Timothy is because it has been proven in Timothy. He even gives us an example of what that means. He says, like a, like a son with his father, Timothy has, has obeyed and Timothy has been, uh, has been obedient even though, even though it's not been easy. Here I am in prison, Timothy's here with me in prison and yet Timothy continues to minister. The only way to be proven is the way that none of us want to be proven, isn't it? The only way to be proven is through hardship. Nobody cares who leads during the good times. Everybody wants to lead then, right? Everybody wants to make the easy decisions and get the easy ones. But who will stand up in the midst of the fire? 
Who will stand up as the whole building begins to fall down? Who will lay themselves over the backs of the children as the beams are falling down to keep them safe? That's when you learn about a man. That's when you learn about a woman. That's when you learn about character. It's through the proving grounds of affliction. The proving grounds of courage. The proving grounds of facing down things that make you want to back down. And Timothy, Timothy had shown himself true. He had walked as Christ had walked. Christ had humbled himself unto death. It sounds just like what he's writing about Timothy, right? He had humbled himself in obedience to the Father, even obedience upon the cross. And here is Timothy, the son of Jesus, living like Jesus. Because that's what mature Christians do. That's what mature Christians do. Think about Paul's situation. Paul is here in a Roman prison facing the prospect of being beheaded. Of being beheaded because he has been preaching the gospel. Of being beheaded because he is seeking to share the best news in the world in the midst of a world that doesn't want to hear the good news. If you're friends with Paul, this is a good time to disassociate yourself from Paul. But what is Timothy doing? Timothy's not writing Paul letters. Timothy's not cheering Paul on from a distance. Timothy is there in the prison willingly with Paul, ministering to Paul, keeping the, mission, the ministries of Paul advancing and going forward at the possibility that Timothy himself might find himself in the very same chains, facing the very same punishment and the very same death. But there's Timothy with, with great bravery and great courage, Dividing the word rightly, saying what is the truth, sharing the good news, preaching the gospel, ministering to the suffering saint. Yeah, he was proven. See, people who are saved by faith live by faith. Let me say that again. People who are saved by faith live by faith. If you come to Jesus saying, Jesus, you are worthy of all of my life. Jesus, I entrust to you all of my life. Then if you have that faith, you must necessarily, if that is true, entrust to him all of your life and live like he is worthy of all of your life. That is the difference between a faith that is like the demons and a faith that is alive because faith without works is dead. Those who are saved by faith will live by faith. Because you see, brothers and sisters, an easier life requires less of God. An easier life requires less of God. And God is not content to let his people live a life that doesn't require him. God is not content to allow his people to continue on believing that they are stronger than they are, they are mightier than they are, that they are better than they are, as though they don't actually need him. No, God will call you down a joyful, afflicted path that will remind you of your own weakness, of your own insufficiency, of your own inadequacy, because it will bring you joy when you see God come through. It will bring you pleasure when you see God come through. It will bring you comfort when everything else falls down around you. 
See, the mature Christian prays, God, show me at all costs, even more how wonderful you are. Not, God, make my life easier and simpler so that it doesn't feel like I need you so much. How do you pray? How do you pray? Is your constant prayer, God, I want you to make my life easier? Is your constant prayer, God, I want you to make my life simpler? Or is your honest prayer before Almighty God who sees the motive of your heart, God, at all costs, at all expenses, at all hardships, at all difficulties, God, show me your glory. John, that's the prayer of an elder. It's the prayer of an elder to stand before God naked and exposed and say, God, I just want you. God, increase my confidence in you. Increase my hope in you. And I will follow after you. The second person that he begins to show us is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Now we know, we know a lot less about Epaphroditus, but it appears to us that Epaphroditus must have been an elder in Philippi because of the responsibilities that he's been given by the Philippian church. They have sent Epaphroditus as a messenger to Paul. They, and when we talk about sin, okay, we think about these guys going on a trip. We think about getting in the old F-250 and running to Birmingham, right? They didn't have combustion engines at the time, okay? This is a thousand mile journey. A thousand mile journey across the sea through the midst of incredible, incredible landscapes that are often infested with thieves and with robbers. And here Epaphroditus is sent by the church to go and give a letter to Paul. Hey, could you go tell Paul we need some help? And Epaphroditus goes. He goes to to see what's going on with Paul, to minister to Paul, to give a message to Paul, essentially to carry a letter with all the problems of his church. He's like, hey, here you go, Paul, can you fix it? And then I'll hike back. And the first thing that we see in Epaphroditus' life is that mature Christians are focused on God's kingdom, not building their own platform. Mature Christians are focused on God's kingdom not building their own platform. Let's read verse 25 together. It says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to any need. Now, do you notice anything about the words that Paul uses? Remember what Paul's been talking about, right? Paul's been talking about unity in the church. Paul's been talking about the the need for us all to be of one spirit and of one mind and of one passion, of one work, of one mission. And what does he say about Epaphroditus? This is my brother. This is my fellow worker. This is my fellow soldier. In other words, he's using all of these words of, of cooperation. He's using all of these words of unity to show that Epaphroditus and I are in the foxhole together. Epaphroditus and I, we we are brothers with each other. Epaphroditus has my heart and my mission and I have Epaphroditus' heart and I have Epaphroditus' mission. And here's Epaphroditus a thousand miles from home and he cares about what's happening at home and he cares about what's happening in Rome. Here's Epaphroditus and it matters to him what's going on in his home church and at the very same time, it matters to him what's happening with the servant of God that's in prison in Rome. 
He could have never even worried about it. He could have just given lip service that I'm concerned for Paul. All of the Philippian church could have, but instead, 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 they went to Paul and said, Paul, let us bear this burden with you. Let us be in the foxhole with you. Paul, we care not just about what's happening in Philippi. We care about what's happening in the global church. So I find it true among Christians today that we have far too many seeking to build a platform and not nearly enough seeking to build the kingdom of God. Far too many seeking to build a platform and not nearly enough seeking to build the kingdom. We want to lead a ministry so that our ministry becomes a higher priority and so that our favorite projects secure the most funding and so that our church becomes the biggest church. We struggle to find passion in ministries in other parts of the town and in other states and in other nations. Other ministries in the church feel like competitors for the same market share rather than co-laborers for the same almighty God. Rather than celebrating our sister churches when they experience great good for the gospel, we instead resent them, wondering why they are getting what we deserve. We seek to advance our own platform and advance our own ministry and advance our own vision at the expense of the very vision, the very dream, the very mission of God himself, the kingdom. But Epaphroditus shows us something far more beautiful, doesn't he, church? Epaphroditus, who goes on that thousand mile journey across the continent, he shows us something that is worth us aiming at, worth us pursuing. Epaphroditus shows us a Christian maturity that reveals how comprehensively Jesus loves the church by how comprehensively he loves the church. That the kingdom-minded Christian cares for the whole body of Christ. The kingdom-minded Christian is not just concerned about the church at Iron City. The kingdom-minded Christian is concerned about the church in Brazil and the church in China and the church in Kazakhstan and the church in West Anniston and the church in Cleburne County and the church that's in center. The, the, the kingdom-minded Christian is not self-absorbed. The kingdom-minded Christian is not only concerned about their corner of the kingdom so that they can advance their own name and build their own Christian empire in the name of Jesus. Instead, 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 the kingdom-minded Christian cares about what Jesus cares about, has the interests of Christ as his own interests and takes up the burden of Christians globally that they might advance the good name of the one who saves. You see, children care only about what concerns them. Children care only about what concerns them. Mature adults care about the whole family. Only children say, that's not my problem, I'm not gonna deal with it. Only Christian, only children step over the mess in the living room and say, hey, mom will take care of it. Adults, adults say, this is my family and they will not live like this. This is my family and they will eat. This is my family and they will be cared for. 
This is my family and they will be provided for. Brothers and sisters, let us stop living as though we are spiritually petulant children and instead stand up as Epaphroditus stood up and say, Lord, Lord, send me to the ends of the earth that your family might be ministered to, that your family might be loved. You see, it is the height, it is the height of spiritual immaturity and spiritual childishness to say it doesn't pertain to me so I don't care. Instead, instead the mature say, I care about the widows as I care about the children. I care about the mission partnerships that I've never been on just as much as the one that is my favorite. I care about them all. I care about every ministry comprehensively because that's how Christ cares. John, that's what it looks like to be a pastor. That's what it means to be an elder not to lock in into the one corner of the church in which you have the most influence, but instead to carry the burden of the whole congregation, to care about how it relates to those that are the youngest and those that are the oldest, those that are the richest and those that are the poorest, those that are suffering and those that are thriving. It is to bear the burden of all of them and to shepherd all of them and to equip all of them for the work of the ministry. The second the, the second trait that we see in Epaphroditus' life is that Christ, mature Christians are willing to be misunderstood, not ruled by the approval of others. They're willing to be misunderstood, not ruled by the approval of others. So verse 29 gives us the only two imperatives or the only two commands that we have in all of this text, right? He says in verse 29, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Honor Epaphroditus, honor men that are like Epaphroditus. These are the only two commands that he gives in this text to the Philippian church. And they have to do with them receiving Epaphroditus. Now, sometimes when we're interpreting the Bible, we have to read between the lines a little bit and kind of get the story behind the story so we can understand what he's talking about. Now, why is it that you have to tell somebody to receive someone with joy? It's because you believe that they're going to be tempted to not receive him with joy, right? Like if, if I know that you're going to receive John with joy, I don't have to call ahead and say, look, John's on his way. I hope you'll be happy about it, right? It, it's, just, it's, it's automatic. It's, it's assumed. But if you've got problems with John, I might make that phone call and say, hey, look, man, he's really working in the Lord. He's going to come and repent, you know? Epaphroditus most likely carries a letter all the way, a thousand mile journey. Now, if I'm Epaphroditus, I might get lost or at least lose the letter. But likely he carries the letter across the sea all the way to a Roman prison that essentially says he's inadequate for the job. He can't get it done. All right. We, we need you to send somebody stronger. We need you to send somebody smarter. We need you to send somebody that's more able. We got bigger problems than what Epaphroditus can handle. And so here he is. And Paul's like, go back to them and tell them that it, you're fine. Go back to them and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my own authority. I'm going to give you my own blessing. And you tell them that you are to be honored. You show them that they are to receive you with joy. See, they wanted an expert, but they had Epaphroditus. They wanted an expert, but they, they had Epaphroditus. They wanted a ministry kingpin. Does this sound familiar? They wanted a, a ministry kingpin, but instead all they had was an ordinary man of God. And so Epaphroditus, you can imagine him walking back with this letter that he has from Paul. And he knows what's in it. You know he read it on the way. 
He knows what's in this letter. And here he is, and he knows that when they begin to read it out loud to the whole congregation, which is what they would do, that there's gonna be people there that are gonna be frustrated. That when Epaphroditus shows up and not, and not Timothy, when Epaphroditus shows up and, and not Paul, that they're gonna be disappointed and discouraged when he comes over the crest of the hill. And in Epaphroditus' heart, it would have been very easy for him to begin to resent them. It would be very easy for him to think, you know what, I think I'll move on to a ministry in another town. It could be very easy for for Epaphroditus to say, you know what, if they can't appreciate all that I'm sacrificing for them, I'm just gonna back away. But Epaphroditus doesn't do that. Epaphroditus is resolved with the encouragement of Paul, with the salvation of Christ to go back to his church and to minister to them anyway. You see, you can't be, you cannot live as an effective Christian without being misunderstood. Do you realize that? You can't live in the pursuit of holiness in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, as Paul has just said, and expect everybody to get what you're doing and to want what you're selling. If you're going to live as a deacon in the church, you're going to be misunderstood as a deacon in the church. You're going to be undervalued and unappreciated as a deacon in the church. If you serve in any of the ministries in the church, there are going to be people that wish you would do it differently and wish that you would do it better and don't really understand why you do the things that you do. You're going to be misunderstood. If you try to live as a faithful, mature Christian, there are going to be immature Christians that look at you and think that you live recklessly and that you live foolishly. If you live as an elder in the church, you're going to be charged with making decisions for the good of the church that you know are for the good of the church that the church won't get won't like and won't understand. And to follow after Christ is to follow after a savior that the world rejected. It is to follow after a Christ that the world did not receive, though he was one of them, though he had come for them, they did not receive him. So I wondered this morning, are you willing to be misunderstood? Are you willing to be misunderstood? Are you willing to pay relational costs for following Jesus? Are you willing to to pay personal costs to your reputation and to your standing and to your approval among the many for the good of following after Christ? John, you can't be an elder and not be misunderstood. They don't know what's in your heart. They don't know what you're thinking. A lot of the time, they don't know the circumstances that you know, but brother, 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 you can't quit. You can't quit. Because as Christ came and lived among those who rejected him, you come and you love and you serve and you minister and you teach and you preach and you continue to pray. And you let the spirit of God do the work. The final characteristic, the final mark that we see of a mature Christian in the life of Epaphroditus is that mature Christians are gritty soldiers, not cowardly quitters. Mature Christians are gritty soldiers, not cowardly Christian, not cowardly quitters. Th- think about what Paul emphasizes in Epaphroditus' life. He's been ill. He's been physically unwell. That on the middle of this thousand mile journey, at some point he contracts some type of illness and his word has gotten back to Philippi and they love Epaphroditus, misunderstand him as they may do. They love him and they're worried about him. And so part of the reason that he's sending Epaphroditus back is he wants them to see God has been merciful to Epaphroditus. And though Epaphroditus was sick, he didn't see his sickness. He didn't see his infirmity. He didn't see his affliction as a reason to back down. 
Instead, he carries on. He ministers to Paul. He continues to, to help Paul. And now, now he's going to go on the same journey all the way back to go back to Philippi. You see, that's what it looks like to follow after Jesus. There are always going to be reasons that you should quit. There are always going to be justifiable excuses that you could tell somebody else. And they could say, well, yeah, I, can, I get that. I, I see why you're quitting. I see why you're withdrawing. I see why you're pulling back. But brothers and sisters, do you want to stand before a crucified Lord with those excuses? Do you want to stand before a crucified Lord that was obedient unto death on a cross with excuses as flimsy as I was misunderstood or I had a bad day or I didn't feel good? Here was Epaphroditus near to the point of death and Epaphroditus was resolved before God to carry on anyway. And we stay home when it rains outside or when it's too pretty outside or when our team lost. See, Paul kept evangelizing even though he was locked in a cold prison. Peter kept preaching even though the emperor wanted to set him on fire like a torch. Spurgeon preached in spite of a disabled wife and severe depression. Bonhoeffer kept teaching with the threat of a concentration camp hanging over his head. Jim Elliott went to South America where the natives would not meet him with, spe or would meet him with spears. Aura kept smiling and kept praying and kept loving even after she buried her husband and buried her son. Edwin kept telling about the hope and joy that's found in Jesus even after cancer held him in bed. Simply, profoundly, the truth is, is that mature Christians just don't quit. Mature Christians don't quit. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, those who endure until the end shall be saved. Those, the enemy wants to crush us. The enemy wants to discourage us. But brothers and sisters, we have to decide, will we quit or will we press on? Will we back down or will we step up? You see, adversity is the world's greatest seminary. Adversity is the world's greatest seminary. Adversity is when you will want to hold on to the theology of the sovereignty of God more than any other. It is adversity that will cause you to look to the promises of God and hope in God. It is adversity that will bring depth and confidence in your faith before Almighty God. It is adversity that will remind you of how good God is and how weak you are. It is adversity when theory is put into action. So brothers and sisters, don't let adversity give you the excuses that you're looking for to back down. You're going to face adversity. Don't let hardship give you the justification that you need to withdraw. Don't let discouragement give you all of the excuses necessary for you to pull back. Instead, 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 see adversity as an opportunity to hold fast to the word of God and to press on into the mission of God and to increase your confidence in God. John, there has never been an elder that hasn't faced adversity. There has never been a preacher that has not faced adversity. That when you try, the more spiritual the work you try to do, the more spiritual the attack will be against you. But brothers, stand firm. Stand firm. Don't quit. Press on. Stand up. Be a man of courage and a man of valor that the people of God can look to and see. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. 
I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.